Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning we're in Daniel chapter 3. Y'all brought your Bibles, right? Not The millennials got their phones, but you got your Bible. They're trying to get holy. The holy phone, hallelujah. Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word this morning. We pray that you would use this time to edify our hearts. Lord, teach us what you want to teach us. Say what you want to say. We surrender our lives this morning to the authority of your scriptures. We bow our hearts this morning to the authority of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Church history talks a lot about the death of Peter. Clement's letter around the end of the first century mentions his martyr, martyrdom. Tertullian and Origen, um, early church fathers, both talk about it. And Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, um, the first church history that was written, um, 340 AD, gives us more information about the latter years of Peter's life. The story goes that you kind of put together from all the church fathers. The story goes that um, under Nero, persecution was heating up in Rome, and Peter got ready to leave the city um, trying to avoid persecution. And they say that Peter, as he's getting ready to leave, has a vision of Jesus. So he's walking out of the city gates, and he has a vision of Jesus coming into the city. And church history says that Peter looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to be crucified again. Um, and Peter understood that to mean that he was supposed to go back in the city and endure persecution. But before they took Peter to his death, we also know from church history that they first crucified Peter's wife. We know from the gospel text that Peter was married. The reformers love this fact because they broke away from that Catholic tradition that ministers had to be celibate and they got themselves some wives. Joe Luther got him a wife. He said, enough with that, enough with that. Matthew eight fourteen says, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. So Peter's wife had witnessed the ministry of Jesus. She'd had Peter in her home. The text says that Jesus had come into her house. Peter's wife had watched Jesus radically transform her husband. Somebody say, you need that, hallelujah. Peter's wife had watched Jesus heal her mother as she lay sick, watched her mother get up and get back to doing what grandmas do. The story in church history seems to imply, and a lot of church historians believe, that Peter watched his wife crucified, that he had to watch the account. And it does say that, Eusebius says that as she, as Peter saw her go out to her martyrdom, um, Peter just cried to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. They've been married um, for something like at least 35 years at this point, and they have a history, man. Peter really loves this woman, and as she goes out to her death, he says, remember the Lord. 
as Peter goes to his death, you're probably aware that church history asked, he, he asked the Roman guards if he could be crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. And we know from history that Rome would crucify people in all kind of ways. What's interesting about the death of Peter and the life of Peter is that God's delivered him from death a time or two. There's this ongoing debate. I think every generation talks about this as you study Acts chapter 12, because in Acts chapter 12, James is arrested by Herod and then um, he loses his head and and Herod sees, the text says that he sees that it pleases the Jews. So Herod arrests Peter to go ahead and martyr Peter because it's pleasing the crowds. But the text says that um, Peter slept between the two guards through the night. That an angel comes and wakes Peter up and leads him out. You remember this is the story of the servant girl Rhoda who didn't who who ran to the door and said Peter's there, and they said no, he's just his angel. As you read Acts twelve, you're confronted with this question: Why would God allow James to suffer martyrdom and yet set Peter free? Some make the argument that James was killed because the church didn't pray. The text does say that the church prayed for Peter, but I don't think that's a very good argument. The most resistant of atheists at all prays when you put a barrel at his head. You know what I'm saying? Everybody prays in war. I'm sure that James prayed. James is the brother of John. I'm sure that John prayed. There's no reason to conclude that Peter didn't pray. Remember we talked about Peter, James, and John. They were close. There's no reason to believe that the, that people of God didn't pray for James. That's what you call an argument from silence. It's not what the text says. But it does say that the text prayed, that the church prayed for Peter. And that's important. I think it's interesting that the disciples, they replace Judas. Remember when Judas betrays um, Jesus and he kills him? Um, they replace Judas, but they don't, um, they don't replace James. They let James be the first martyr. And I think in this encounter in Acts 12 and through the life of Peter, I think we learn a lesson that every believer learns sooner or later. And I think we find this lesson in the Garden of Gethsemane. We find Jesus praying in this Garden of Olive Trees. And Gethsemane means literally um, the olive press or the place where the olive is crushed. And that's what would happen that night in that garden. Jesus would begin to experience his crushing. And as Jesus prays, um, the, the, the text in Luke tells us that Jesus um, says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We find Jesus praying through anxiety. Hematidrosis is what the medical field calls this um, condition that Jesus experiences when his 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 when his blood vessels begin to rupture and to mingle with his sweat. And, the, and Luke, interestingly enough, Luke the physician tells us in his gospel that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood. And this condition, many say that this condition comes from holding in fight or flight mode for too long. When your body's in fight or flight mode and you begin to have anxiety and you're nervous and your body literally either wants to swing or run, but Jesus just holds up under it so long that his blood vessels rupture and he begins to 
sweat blood and he prays and he prays father take this cup from me this agony take this trial from me but underneath that prayer is this resolve and the resolve is nevertheless let your will be done and not mine the prayer is take me out of this trial this fire is hot but but under it is but if you are using this go ahead and use it and and every believer has to find that place of God. I pray for deliverance. I believe you're going to deliver me. But underneath that is this understanding of if you are using this, if you are pressing me, if you are crushing me for your glory, go ahead and let your glory be done. Peter's delivered from his trial in Acts chapter 12. But he goes to his death in the year eighty sixty four. Peter in Acts twelve decides to take a little nap in prison, even though they've just killed James. There's an interesting text at the end of John's Gospel. It's the last chapter of John's Gospel. Do you remember this encounter Jesus is having with Peter about his denial and and Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love me? Do you remember this encounter? At the end of the encounter, Jesus makes this statement in John 21 verses 18 through 19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, talking to Peter, Jesus talking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus prophesies to Peter that while you're young, you'll dress yourself. Um, but when you're old, another will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Um, in Acts 12, it's interesting. Acts 12 verses 7 through 8 says this. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell stood next to Peter. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. I'm sure he put a little extra something into it because Peter always had a big mouth. You know, he had to do what he had to do. And he says to Peter, get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel says, dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. Seems to me that the first thing the angel says, dress yourself, is a reminder of this prophetic word where Jesus says, when you're young, you'll dress yourself. But when you're old, somebody else will dress you. I think we find Peter sleeping in prison because Jesus has already prophesied that he'll die in his old age. And for the record, Peter was around the age 63 when he died. And Jesus said, when you are old, you will die. So if you're above 63 in the house of this morning, Jesus called you old, just so you know. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. So in this encounter, what I'm trying to say is we have multiple things going on at once. On one hand, the church prays, and prayer is powerful. We believe that with all of our hearts. Prayer changes things. On another hand, we have God's sovereignty at play. So James dies in God's timing, and God's going to use James's death. And then we have God's foreknowledge at play, because God tells Peter, you're going to die when you're old, so go ahead and take a nap in jail, because it's not time yet. You're still putting your own clothes on. Um, so we have all these things interacting, and we learn something from the life of Peter that I, I don't know how to articulate perfectly. I'm really struggling to articulate it. But what we see is Peter sleeping in prison when death is knocking at his door. He's released. Then in his old age, death gets him, but he's still worshiping. 
He doesn't worship God only because God delivers. He worships God in deliverance and he's happy, very happy about it. I promise you that. But the day that they come for him, when they come to put him on the cross, his words aren't, God, you are supposed to deliver me out of every trial. His words are, put me upside down because Jesus is so much better than me. I don't want to be remembered dying in the same way as he as he died. And so we have all these themes interacting and the life of the believer. I'm sorry to tell you, you just have to deal with that. You know, we don't always understand why he doesn't answer our prayer, but underneath all of our prayer is if you're using this, use it your will. And so in my life, there are times where I'm really struggling, man. And I'm praying, God, when I wake up tomorrow, deliver me from this fog. But if you're doing something in me, do what you need to do. And if you're going to use me in a particular way, you use me how you want to use me. And I think, I think Peter may have learned this posture from the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, we'll pick up on our text in Daniel chapter 3. If you weren't with us last week, this is the encounter where Nebuchadnezzar erects this big statue and tells everyone, bow to the statue at the sound of the music. Um, and the only people that don't bow are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Nebuchadnezzar confronts them tells them that if they'll bow, everything will be okay. But if not, they'll be thrown into the fire. And what, what they say is, is really profound, if we could take some time to think about it this morning. What they say to Nebuchadnezzar is this, we know that God can deliver us. There's no question about that. He is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful one. We know that God can deliver us. We believe that God will deliver us. Because we are his children, and he loves us, and he has good plans for us. We believe he will deliver us. And then they say this, but if not, we still won't worship your gods. If he doesn't deliver me from this trial, I'm still not bowing to you. So let's read our passage this morning. We'll start in Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times more than it was usually heated. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them in the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said to the king, True, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. We're learning from the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar likes to tear people limb from limb. That's always his response. He's trying to tear somebody up. And their houses laid to ruins. There's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want to just look at this text and kind of follow the narrative this morning. Just kind of try to pull out what the passage is saying to us. And so the first thing that happens in the narrative is we get this conversation between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says to them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Commentators suggest, and I think they're right, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar may be alluding to the deliverance of chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had a dream and unless anyone can tell me the dream and give the interpretation, I'm going to kill everybody. And Nebuchadnezzar is aware that the God of the Jews answered with the dream. So in a sense, it feels like Nebuchadnezzar saying, yeah, your God can give dreams, but your God can't quench my fire. In Nebuchadnezzar's polytheism that was predominant in the day, they were gods for everything, you know, hundreds of gods for everything. It was like a stinking Marvel movie. This God had this power and this God had this power. So he acknowledges the God of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar does, and his ability to give and interpret dreams, but he doesn't have that superpower. He might be able to give you the lottery numbers, which he hasn't done for me yet, um, but he's not going to stop this fire. We do believe we have an enemy. I think there's very good reason scripturally to see demonic influence in the earth. The biblical teaching is clear that there are supernatural beings that interact with the earth but we are not polytheist and there's a very clear distinction that needs to be made what nebuchadnezzar believes in is multiple gods who all have different little powers what we believe is one singular god who is the ultimate triune power of all the universe and yes there are demonic beings but even the biggest demon shudders at the name of jesus and, and yes, there is demonic influence, but Jesus says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He just thrown down. So while we act in our Christian life and we pray, there are times where we might feel like we're in spiritual warfare and there are demonic influence, but we're not polytheists. We don't believe that God is in any way bound, intimidated, nervous at all by demonic influence. We believe that the God of heaven, who is the ultimate, omnipotent, eternal being, has given us authority to speak to those issues. And so we we don't live like polytheists. We don't live nervous and afraid and God can do this, but God can't do this. And this problem might be too big for 
before God. We don't live like that at all because the breath of his mouth speaks galaxies. He will cut down Nebuchadnezzar with one utterance. We don't, we don't live that way. So watch their response. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I want to take some time just to engage with their theology here for a moment and their approach to life. First, again, he is able to deliver us. They intend to educate Nebuchadnezzar on their monotheism here. He's not only omniscient, but he's omnipotent, all-powerful. He knows your dream, and he's the one that will cause your dream to come to pass. They believe God is the ultimate giver of life, the one who has no beginning, and he has no end. He speaks the galaxies into motion. I think they're saying, no, our God is the absolute, the total, the complete one. He knows your dream and gave it to you, and he can quench this fire with one utterance of his breath. And sooner or later, Nebuchadnezzar, he will cause your knee to bow before his glory. They say, we know he is able to deliver us. There's no fire too hot. And for you, every trial that you face, every time you find yourself in a bit of a predicament, you have to remember that there is no predicament that God can't resolve in a moment. I think that these three remembered the stories of old, that the God of Israel parted the seas so that Israel can cross, only to cause the waves come tumbling down on the Egyptians. He causes fire to fall from heaven and consume Elijah's sacrifice, even though Elijah bathed the thing in water. He let a young boy take down the Philistine giant. Remember David utters, you come to me with a sword and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Gideon conquers with just 300. I think they say to Nebuchadnezzar, your fire may be hot, but Deuteronomy tells us that our God is an all-consuming fire. And when he spoke to Moses, the bush was covered in flame, yet it was not consumed by the fire. God's not intimidated by the fire of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not intimidated by the fire of your trial. God is the God of fire. He is the God who causes all things to come into motion. And I understand that, that there are times in life where depression may be knocking at your door, have you in the palm of its hands, where anxiety, the voice of anxiety seems to be breaking in your eardrums. I understand that there are times where it feels like nothing is going right, but you have to remember that God is able to deliver you from the fire. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He was able yesterday, he's able today, and he's able tomorrow. Second, they say, we believe he will deliver us. They walk in faith here that God's not finished with them yet. They're thoroughly confident that that God reveals himself as loving father, and they're the children of God, and God has good intentions for them. So 
what's important that we remember is that when we when we talk about theology and we use words like omnipotent, God's omnipotent, He's the eternal one. We're, we're we're using these kind of technical terms, but the real heartbeat of theology is when you understand that, and then you begin to understand His character. So not only is He able to deliver, but He will deliver. He is omnipotent, but He is a gracious, kind Father who loves me. That omnipotence is pointed at me, and that omnipotence has declared to me that He is my good shepherd and I shall not want. And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he walks with me, that good shepherd. It's not enough just to believe that God is the ultimate. We believe that God is the ultimate and he is also the ultimate lover of us. We believe that God loves us perfectly. And so our stance and our posture is always believing for deliverance. We don't quit praying for the sick because we didn't see someone healed. We keep believing. We don't stop believing for deliverance because something didn't happen like we thought it was going to happen. We keep believing. The church are a people who understand God's power and his character, and they activate that character with their faith and release freedom to the earth. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We believe he will. theology at its finest we believe he will in their last statement but if he doesn't and I think that's the underlying but nevertheless your will not mine but if he doesn't we will not serve your gods it's the posture of the church to say we believe God will deliver and then it's the posture of the church to keep praising even if the fire is getting a little hotter We keep letting our worship rise. We sing this morning, we raise a hallelujah in the face of our trials and all of the storm and all of life's baggage. And when death and hell seem to throw everything at us that she can muster up, we stand in the face of it and say, but we still praise. But we don't bow to you. But we will not surrender. But we don't slow down. Jerome, you know, the first, the the first, the fourth century um, church father. He said about this passage commenting, he said that what, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do is they indicate that if God does not deliver, it will not be a matter of God's inability, but rather of his sovereign will if they do perish. What they're saying is that if we aren't delivered, it's not that God can't deliver us, but God's sovereign over our lives and we belong to him. And it's that nevertheless, his will be done. And so why is James not delivered? Nevertheless, his will be done. Because sometimes in the fire of persecution, and I don't have time to fully articulate this point, but sometimes in the fire of persecution, when when the heat begins to rise, the person is cooked down to the very core of their value system. It's the reason why when, when there's interrogation, you oftentimes try to hurt people, to get out what you want them to say. So in the same sense, when for James, when they put a knife to his throat, this is a moment in which James could say, nah, I'm tapping out. But because he doesn't say, nah, I'm tapping out, his voice of praise rings the loudest. There's no doubt about what James believes when his blood's dripping from his neck. So there are times where God allows his children to walk through fire because as the world watches that flame heat up, what they're seeing is they really believe what they say they believe. And they're not just doing this because everything's nice and dandy, but they're doing this because God has actually gripped their hearts. 
So we believe in deliverance. We believe that God is the God of the fire who will set me free. But if God intends to use that fire to allow my voice to be amplified through the persecution, nevertheless, let your will be done. In God's sovereignty, they make this subtle declaration that nothing touches my life that God is unaware of. And nothing touches my life that God does not have the ability to cut off in any moment. We do well to embrace the theological perspective that if in his sovereignty he allows persecution, we all going to die sooner or later. If in his sovereignty he allows some sickness to cut me down, I'll go down modeling for my kids and hopefully for my grandkids. I'll go down modeling for the people that I pastor and hopefully pastor in the future generations to come that I am sure that God is able I'll go down, if I have some sickness strike me, I will go down saying God is able to heal the sick. He's still the God who is able to heal the sick. And cancer does not make God nervous. God is able. And if sickness begins to take me down, I will go down saying God loves me. And I'm sure he will, I believe he will heal me. And then I'll go down saying, but if he lets this cancer strike me, you know that I believe he is the sovereign, good, ultimate, wonderful, beautiful, worthy God. He's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. He is the lover of my soul. I am thoroughly and completely enthralled with his beauty and a little fire is not going to shut me up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what if God doesn't bring you through this financial crisis with Benjamins flowing out your pocket? What if he actually makes you budget? (laughs) And what if we pray for breakthrough in your marriage and it's never as romantic as that time that Adam Sandler made Drew Barrymore keep falling in love with him every day? What if it's never like that? Our confession, our very loud confession is, even if not, we still worship. Our confession is also, and I wish I could scream this at the charismatic Pentecostal movement. Our confession is also, we don't pretend to understand why not. I, I don't understand the complexities of his sovereign will. I don't, and, and, and I'm not called to. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are much higher than my ways. His perspective is so much different than mine. And sometimes I want him to break this problem right now. Show up and show off. But sometimes he's doing something different. Oftentimes he's setting us up for a different day. You don't have to understand why. So next in the narrative, I'm not going to be too long. I know some of y'all getting nervous. Next in the narrative... What happens is Nebuchadnezzar says the order orders to heat the fire seven times hotter. And scholars tell us that's just kind of a an idiom, a little phrase, which means make that sucker as hot as you can make it. And he makes it so hot that the, the workers fall in. They're in such a rush and they fall in and die. The point of that is that don't let your kids play with gasoline. It's, it's a little bit dangerous. The The... The text seems to apply that they use some kind of furnace to build the statue. Remember the scene is still that they're all out in front of the statue, thousands of leaders surrounding. And, and 
And most scholars believe that the statue sat on some kind of platform. Remember, we talked about that last week. So it's possible that the furnace was used to make brick for the platform. or And, and also that the statue was plated in gold. The statue itself wasn't actually gold. So it, they were they were using the furnace to, to build the thing, essentially. And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, bow to the thing or I'm going to throw you in the fire that built it. And he gets the thing real hot. And Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 experienced God's omniscience. But in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to experience God's omnipotence. Here, God will declare to all of the people of the kingdom, again, thousands of people, all of the leaders, he will declare, I am the God of the fire who makes my servants stand in the fire. You can't touch those who I anoint. Nebuchadnezzar asked those standing with him, we only put three in there, right? But I see one who is like the son of God. In Talmud, the Jewish commentary says, this must be Gabriel. But there, there's many arguments that, that seem to say that the, his verbiage says that this is one like God. This is divine. And I'm on the page with most commentators that this was a theophany or Christophany more particularly that this in this moment was Jesus standing in the fire with them. And I think that Nebuchadnezzar brings his hottest fire and God brings the rock of Daniel chapter two, the rock that's not cut with human hands. And and Nebuchadnezzar now finds himself standing face to face with the rock of Daniel chapter two. And the rock says, no, no. And the text says that even their clothes went without being scorched. And they exited the furnace without even the smell of smoke on them. Nebuchadnezzar brings his hottest flame and God brings Jesus. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he brought a knife to a gunfight. Because Jesus stands on your waves. He turns your mundane water into the best wine of the night. And he's the God who stands in the flames with you. And then the response. Nebuchadnezzar starts with praising God. He gets tongue-tied real quick. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he honors them saying, They trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than service and worship the, the God, any other God but their own. It's interesting that, let me say it this way. When you stand for truth, time will always be on your side. When, when you stand consistent and with your integrity, time works in your favor. 30 minutes ago, they could have bound down and got out of it, but just give it enough time and Nebuchadnezzar's going, no, you were right. And it's, and it's the same way in history. I understand that you may find yourself in conflicts and I understand that sometimes standing for the truth is hard. But, but just, I mean, just take a glance at history. People were all frustrated with Dr. Martin Luther King, but now his name's everywhere. Ain't nobody frustrated with him today because truth was on his side, and truth is on the side of time. It's the same we talk about the Holocaust. Nobody's standing up screaming Hitler was right. Not today. And, and again, you've heard me say this before when, when we're talking about abortion in our nation. If you've had an abortion in the room, there is grace for you. Jesus loves you. There is no condemnation. But I think coming generations will look back and say, why in the world didn't they just put their kids up for adoption? Why would they murder their own babies? I think generations, give it some time, are going to say, what in the world were they thinking? And so we could bow today and say, oh, I guess you're right. We'll back off. Or we can stand in truth and let time be on our side. 
And it's that same principle plays out in multiple ways. Archaeologists will find something and declare this new find proves the scriptures to be false and give it a couple years and it'll be disproved. Give it a couple years and they'll understand that what they found isn't a part. It's the same on, on multiple levels. So when you find yourself at work and there's a conflict or you find yourself in some kind of financial thing that's not quite right, you, you walk in integrity. When you find yourself in a relational thing and people are button and you could compromise or you could gossip or you could, no, you walk in integrity. You do not have to defend yourself or justify yourself. He is the justifier and if you give it enough time, he will vindicate. And Nebuchadnezzar makes the decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. So in conclusion, this is just what I wanted to say. When the dust settles, when all is said and done, when this thing is over and Jesus comes back, we will have peace. We will have full and total peace. And the pain that we experience today, the suffering, Roman says, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans chapter 8. Um, in that sense, there's a day when we will have complete and total peace and joy and all of the suffering and pain that we've known, all the trials and the fiery at best will be memory. At best. But the question becomes, how do we live today in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the sickness, in the midst of the controversy? How will you live? And my simple suggestion is that you live with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you live with Peter, who all say, first, we know God is omnipotent. We know that there is nothing, not a single thing that he cannot accomplish if he so wills to do so. And second, we say with them all, we believe God to be deliverer. We believe with all of our hearts that God loves us perfectly. If you don't get that right about the gospel, the gospel will fall apart to you. God loves us in Christ perfectly, totally, and completely. God has seen our transgressions and God is aware of our sins, but God makes atonement for us on the cross of Calvary. And that blood is much more powerful than you could even begin to imagine. The blood completely washes us. Isaiah says, though your sins were as scarlet, man, he would make you white as snow. We are confident that we, we boldly, Hebrew says, we boldly enter the throne room of grace because we know that he loves us. We know that he loves us. So we say, God's able to deliver us from this trial, yes. Second, he will deliver us. He really loves us. He's got our good plans in his heart. He's fought through this. He will deliver but underneath it, we undergird it with, but if not, your will be done and not my will be done. If you can use my pain to glorify your name, so be it. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.